Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week it's Creed vs. Supergirl, a spin-off off. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and Adam is still on his sabbatical, as he's been for the past month or so, so I'm all alone here in the ring, unless I have somebody else here to help me out, you know, maybe a tag team match against these two movies I've got here. Who could it be? Oh, wait, I see, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's James Rodriguez back on the show for the first time in far too long. James, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be back, Thomas, and you gotta cut me loose! I need to go take a shit! We'll, we'll sort that out soon, but in the meantime, James, welcome back to the show. Like I said, it's been too long since you've been on, and uh, today we are here to discuss spinoffs, which uh, was chosen uh, partially by our patrons over at uh, patreon.com slash gedbpod. More on that later. Um, who uh, voted in a poll between which topic we would cover here to tie in with Creed 3, which will be hitting theaters in the States at least, uh, James, over here um, on the 4th of March. So it'll be this coming Friday that we're releasing this. And uh, we decided on, you know, spinoffs as a potential topic because, you know, we've covered prequels, we've covered sequels, remakes, all sorts of things. Spinoffs is kind of fascinating because spinoffs basically, it can encompass a lot of those things where you could have a spinoff that is like a sequel or a prequel or whatever, but ostensibly it's focusing on somebody who was, you know, a sort of side character uh, that may have been referenced or was like related to somebody from the original movies. Um, like, for example, you know, you could have your Conjuring franchises where you have like a Conjuring 2, but also you can have like, say, the Annabelle 3, which is partially a sequel to The Conjuring, but also a spinoff about Annabelle, but also does involve the Warrens in some capacity. Uh, there's a lot of permutations and stuff. How do you feel about the concept of a spinoff, as it were, James, in the modern uh, media landscape? Well, a spinoff can be an interesting thing. The idea can feel a bit tainted because it can often be, say, a cash grab or something which fails to justify why it exists in the first place but it can also do something far more interesting than what the original um preciding film or or tv show or whatever media did i mean let's not forget in the tv landscape some of the best shows are spin-offs i mean there's frasier there's the simpsons and right. and it's just yeah, it feels a bit weighed down by the less favorable ones, but there's ample opportunity and ample room for something great to grow out of those beginnings. Yeah, yeah, I would agree because like the thing is with, you know, a sequel or a prequel, like that that's a problem with those movies too, is that when you have like successful original mm. movie and then you make like something that's a direct sequel, I think there's more pressure on that, obviously, because it's like, oh, how are you gonna follow this up? Is there sequelitis? What is other stuff as opposed to I think in theory like the spin-off has a lot more fascinating opportunity to it because you can't just like show here's another corner of this universe that you hadn't seen before. Like that's why, you know, 
to bring up Star Wars, a thing on the internet everyone's cool about, and no one is a dick <laughs> about it at all. Um, like, Star Wars, when, like, they were starting to diverge away from just doing, like, the Skywalker saga, and they were doing initially those movies, like Rogue One or mm-hmm. Solo, a Star Wars story, but those movies, I think, kind of suffered from kind of being too tied to the earlier movies, as opposed to, say, some of the TV stuff, I think, particularly Andor, has done such an mm. incredible job where that's a show that it does take place in Star Wars. There's like references and bits and pieces occasionally, but it is just like, hey, in the corner of like your big sci-fi fantasy adventure story, there's a really fucking cool like spy rebel show that's going on here. And I think that's 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 what you want. You want like an Andor. But then again, you could also get like, say, Book of Boba Fed, some of these other things that people aren't as hot on necessarily. So and that goes for any spin-off media, and especially in film, I think it's a bit rougher to do that because like uh, you know, Andor wouldn't work as like a single movie. Mm-hmm. And like trying to sort of tell introduce a whole different side of this within like a two hour package, I think can be quite difficult. But when done right, as we'll I think talk about here, it's uh it can be a thing of beauty. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it can be just a wonderful example for someone to really then make their mark and tell something different within that same universe but then it can also be just a bizarre way to layer on the nostalgia bullshit that we all get sick of true true um uh but let's go ahead and go into our two movies we picked at the end of the last episode where adam despite being gone uh did submit bad picks for this episode in his absence and i had my two good picks and i ended up picking at the end of the last episode for our bad pick which was adam's which was supergirl and then my good pick which was creed which obviously ties in very well given creed 3 is coming out we'll be talking about the original creed as it were the original spinoff to the rocky franchise but Let's go ahead and start off with Supergirl. She came halfway across the universe in search of a cosmic power source that could save her world from destruction. Who is she? Who on earth are you? You know, I think I recognize the costume. From the producers of Superman. Supergirl in her first great adventure. Wait a minute, wait one minute. I mean, you can do the whole number, leap tall buildings with a single bound? You can look right through things? Yes. Ben steel bars? Yes. Like Superman. He's my cousin. Whoa. Starring Faye Nunaway. Now I am really upset. Peter O'Toole. My neighbors know the criminals, the corrupt, the evil. They're here, over the hill there, with no way out. And introducing Helen Slater as Supergirl. So Supergirl came out uh, on November 11th, 1984, um, and is based on the character from DC Comics, though um, wasn't referenced in the Superman movies from the 70s and 80s starring Christopher Reeve, which is his in canon with, and that we do see a picture of Christopher Reeve Superman. Um, he was going to be in this, and he decided to bow out. I can't imagine why um, at that point, particularly post-Superman 3, where he would want to not do that. <laughs> this is following, of course, a... Kara Zorel, who is the cousin of Superman, uh, as depicted in the comics, and it follows the journey of her as she tries to save her weird pocket dimension world uh, from destruction, uh, but gets sidetracked by wanting to fuck Ellis from Die Hard, and also <laughs> fighting over him with a witch character, played by Faye Dunaway. Um, weird stuff happens there. So I'm curious, before we even get into Supergirl, James, are you a fan of that Christopher Reeve-era Superman? Um, 
I've seen the first three of Christopher Reeve Superman films, and I really like uh, what Christopher Reeve does with the character. I think it's a wonderful depiction that's yet to be matched with these live-action iterations. Sorry, Cavill fans. He just... The writing was never there for me. I liked the majority of what I saw, but I feel, particularly with Superman 3, that the writing just wasn't there to match up to what Reeves' performance could do, especially with how good the first and second films were. Yeah, uh, we kind of talked about Superman fairly recently on the show in the last couple months, uh, because we did our uh, second canon films episode, and we talked about Superman 4, which would come after this. Um, TLDR for me, um, I think the first Superman's pretty great until it gets to be like a weird disaster movie. I think the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2 is amazing. I think Superman 2, the theatrical version, is very dicey because it's part Richard Donner, part Richard Lester. I don't think that meshes up together as well. Uh, Superman 3 is dire. It's mostly like a bad Richard Pryor movie. That feels like the beginning of Mm -hmm. the end of the Richard Pryor movie, (laughs) to me, honestly, uh, with Superman 3. And then Superman 4, as we discussed previously, um, very bad movie, but a fascinating example of how a studio can completely destroy themselves by cutting a budget in half in order to make 15 other small-budget movies that would also fail. Um, But, you know, in between 3 and 4... We did get Supergirl, um, and yeah, this one, actually, I had not seen before uh, Adam ended up picking it. This was always sort of, like, the more infamous example, even compared to, like, Superman 3 and 4. This was the one I was sort of like, oh, this is the worst one. This is so bad and terrible. And um, I do have a lot of thoughts on that, but James, uh, had you had any history with Supergirl then before you saw this one, and uh, were you a fan? So this is a film I hadn't seen before. I am a DC fan. I think it's particularly the comics, do more interesting things than Marvel. But my my knowledge is mainly centred around Batman. Yes, I am a typical white man, sorry. But Supergirl is a character which I haven't really had a lot of experience with. I could not keep up with that Arrowverse stuff when they kept adding shows mm-hmm. upon shows. So my biggest exposure to the character was that season she was in Smallville. And... I just went into this film, I've, and when I came out, I just felt it's been a while since a film left me that bored. It's just fascinating that it's essentially a film about a ca- title character's race against time, and yet there seems to be a little sense of urgency for in the film or with the character itself. It's weird where, like, the initial inciting incident, there's a bit of that urgency that you're talking about, because, like, she's in her weird, like, it's the city of... Andor or Handor, I'm not sure what it was called, but it's this big, weird, gauche, like, it, it feels like it's made of cobwebs and bullshit, like, city that they're in. I guess all the survivors of Krypton, who we didn't know about until now, because we thought everyone else died, um, is there, including uh, Kara, and we also have uh, Peter O'Toole and Mia Farrow over there. <laughs> Mia Farrow for, like, a split second. She's just like, I need to get the fuck out of here <laughs> after I'm here for, like, a brief scene. Um, and uh, they're like, oh, yeah, we have this magical MacGuffin thing that um, is the key to keeping our, um, you know, resources alive. Here, you go play with it, Kara. <laughs> go play with it somewhere. It's fine, whatever. Uh, it's the key to our entire life source, but sure, whatever. And then uh, that thing gets sucked into space from their little dimensional pocket that they're in and it's like oh no we got to go and find it and then peter was like don't worry i'll go do it and here's how i'll explain how i'm gonna use this like big machine that can transport things for me to get back and while he's doing that kara's like no nah, i want to do it i want to get out of here i want to be where the people are and so she uh, goes off in this machine and transports i guess through dimensionally into the water 
and then rises out in complete Supergirl garb. Because, um, you know, at least the the Richard Donner movie explained it like, oh, it's like his baby blanket that turned Superman's costume into what it was. Uh, versus, uh, no, this, in this case, she just has the suit now. <laughs> and she's like, rises out of the water. She frolics around uh, looking at the woods. And then Noah says, oh, there's an all-girls school. I want to join up with them. And then abandons her mission to save her people who are, presumably, we don't see them, but presumably they're all, like, horribly dying. Which is like, oh, save us! And she's like, oh, bunny, this is so cute, I love this place, please, we're dying! Um, so, <laughs> that's all going on. Well, also, as I mentioned, there is this, the MacGuffin gets into the hands of Faye Dunaway, who plays this weird witch character who I don't believe is in the comics, from what I understand, a completely weird original invention, who also initially has the desire of, like, oh my god, with this I can control the world and rule with an iron fist. And then as she's, like, driving around with her best gal pal, she looks over and she's like, oh, a man! I gotta make him fall in love with me and not... Really, she abandons her attempts to rule the world after that. And that's, like, about an hour into this two-hour movie. Like we're saying, like that's where any kind of story really stops in favor. Just, like, we're fighting over Hart Bachner, Alice from Die Hard without his beard. So, a criminal. Miss you. She's like, sure, he looks hunky and everything, but where's that beard? That's what I want. Hans Booby, he's gotta have that beard. No beards, no coke addiction, apparently. No, no sale for me, sir. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's the trouble. It's just like, you know, this was one of the early examples, I, I believe the first, if not the first, like, female-led superhero movie. So in theory, mm. you'd want to be like, oh, this is like a different thing we can do and we can have like a, a you know, actual female-led superhero movie. But in the process of it, um, this becomes a weirdly motivation light movie that removes any of the agency of these women except for the fact, like, we want to fuck this dude. And that's, like, their only motivation to do anything. So it's, like, really backwards. And I feel like this probably hurt the chance for other female superhero movies for so long. Because you would have figured, like, when uh, Wonder Woman popped up in, like, Batman v Superman, that should not have been the first cinematic appearance of that character. Like, she's popular yeah. enough to where, like, she would have been in something besides the Linda Carter TV show in the 70s at some point. But I think this movie, I think, really killed any chance of that. And... It's a shame because, um, especially considering, you know, I think everyone here is trying. I think Helen Slater, she's very fresh-faced, and she's kind of trying to, like, add a bit of, like, whimsy and wonder to this. And Faye Dunaway's having fun. Um, they are lost in this, like, very plotless, meandering movie that's, I agree with you, very dull. It feels very much like the wrong-headed idea of what men creating a women-led film believe it should mm -hmm. be. Because it's like when... Kara touches down on Earth, one of the early scenes, you just immediately get some guys arriving in the truck trying to do awful things to her. And then when it comes to the main story, or what apparently is the main story, what causes the clash between hero and villain, what is a vital part of the story, is just a horny Faye Dunaway using a love potion to make a gardener fall in love with her. But... His escape causes a construction vehicle to chase him, to capture him, until he's saved by an alien who he falls in love with when he believes she's a schoolgirl that she's under a disguise with. And it's just like, what the fuck are you on? That's another thing is like, even before she's dressed up as like a schoolgirl, we're very unclear about how old uh, Car is supposed to be in terms mm. of like... When we initially introduced to her, like I said, Peter O'Toole's just like, oh, here's this incredibly crucial object to our universe. Here, play with it. And she's literally playing it with, like, like she's a small child. I'm just like, this mm. is 
really weird, especially as things go along. And, like, when we see her even on Earth, she's doing stuff like there's a whole sequence where she's with her roommate, who is Lois Lane's little sister at this boarding school. And they have a huge thing, which is, like, get it underlined. She's Lois Lane's sister, and she's Clark Kent's cousin. Oh, man, what a coincidence. Um, there's a point <laughs> where, like, uh, Lois Lane's sister's babbling on about something, and... Meanwhile, Kara is, like, putting a bra over her school uniform and stuffing it. And it's like, why would she have any impulse to do that unless she was, like, a child? That feels like something a child would do. When this ends up, this uh, whole, like, love affair thing happens, it becomes all the more bizarre. Not also helped by the fact, like, the reason he falls in love with her is because um, Faye Dunaway has created a magic potion that he consumes. And apparently, after he drinks that, the first person he sees he will fall in love with. Keep in mind, like, between him falling in love with Kara and him drinking that potion, he's walking through the town populated with, like, a decent amount of people. Like, he didn't, like, lay eyes on anybody. He's walking in the middle of town, but with his eyes fucking closed, I guess? There's no point where, like, the first person would have seen, there's like, oh, the mailman. I love you, mailman. <laughs> or some <laughs> bullshit like that. Just like, that's what would happen. But it's just like, no, he doesn't look at a single fucking person until he's like, oh, God, thank you for saving me. The love of my life. Like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, it just feels very much like, oh, yeah, when you walk through this town, despite you there being people watching you constantly on either side of the road and cars being driven by people going around you just keep your eyes closed nobody will notice right it's just like oh like in a phase heart boxers just walking around in the middle of the street uh especially for like that whole sequence that takes place in, like the small town where, like most of this movie takes place on like one studio block it looks like mm. they would redress it for like about 20 years later for um fucking the town from thor looks very similar to, like, that little location, uh, that one small town. But even then, like, the actual fight is filled with, like, a lot of, like, chaotic destruction that is partially caused by Supergirl herself and massive product placement. Like, she becomes Supergirl and starts saving the day while flying over the Popeye's chicken <laughs> that's prominently displayed. And it's just, like, it reminded me a lot, weirdly, of the Man of Steel fight. Where, like, oh, there's a point yeah. in Man of Steel where there's a lot of product placement. Like, she could have mm. just thrown somebody through an IHOP and it would have been, like, an homage later on from Zack Snyder. Oh, yeah, there was a point when she first enters Lucy's room and right on the side, in clear view, is a box of, I think, Frosties or something like that. And it's just like, okay, can see where the budget came from, I guess. I will give some credit. Where I will say, mm -hmm. I think the flying effects are actually pretty impressive for the most part in the movie, particularly early on, the sequence where she first comes onto Earth and, like, she has the flower and she's, like, flying around the forest. I think genuinely looks like pretty solid effects for the time, especially considering, like, the leaps that have gone on since the first Superman, um, in terms of, like, her actions, like, flying around that look pretty seamless for the era. Um, I don't think I would necessarily say as much when, like, later on, there's a point where Faye Dunaway is like, oh, I have to summon a monster to get after, uh, you know, my man. Um, this monster appears initially invisibly. Like, you just see things destroying all around him. And then when you do see him occasionally, as Kara is fighting him as Supergirl, um, the monster looks very clearly like some Muppet they had in a closet. And then we're just like, I don't know, Jim Henson left this over after he was done doing the Dark Crystal. Let's just fucking have this show up and it'd be like very like weirdly hazy and bullshit like that. Uh, mm -hmm. It's uh, and like there's a lot of stuff in here where like I could think like, oh, this is kind of like schlocky fun. Like I think some would say like Superman 4 is, but it's so languishly paced. Like the two hour runtime, it just makes especially all the stuff at the girls school feel so 
long. <laughs> it's just like, why are we? Mm-hmm. Why? There's nothing even like fun about any of this shit. It's just like dumb fan service. Just like I'm Lois Lane's sister. I'm Clark Kent's cousin. Wow, ain't that a quinky ding? Um, and that's like the most you're supposed to get out of like this like whole sequence where they're at that girl's school. Just like for the love of God, have her th- fucking fly around, do some shit. <laughs> but the thing is, they have the way a way to link in the school stuff to selena's evil plan because the warlock in love with selena nigel is a teacher in the school and it feels like yeah sure if he had the power source maybe that could justify supergirl going undercover in the school but it feels like it's two different elements that nobody had an idea how to bring together yeah, it felt very like these are from two different drafts of a different screenplay mm-hmm. version of this, for sure. Um, and uh, that was Peter Cook, of course. Uh, so, you know, royalty over for you over there, James, uh, the, a, a brilliant English comedian, who I will say um, is the big thing is he's, as you mentioned, kind of like the initial boy toy of Faye Dunaway. Um, and he kind of lives with her and uh, Brenda Vaccaro, um, who's the, the gal pal of Faye Dunaway, inside an abandoned amusement park haunted house that also they pay a mortgage on apparently which is also weird look totally abandoned but they have like a fully furnished like kitchen everything but they travel around by like the fucking carts for this haunted house throughout the house hey the 80s were tough well that's true i mean it's tough all over um but also why would you have to pay a mortgage on that place it said for sale and everything up front just like squalor there like no one's gonna bother i will say i think the most fun stuff is definitely with donaway Vaccaro and even um, the Peter Cook to a certain extent, mm-hmm. like they're kind of like having a weird kind of like thruple situation in that fucking haunted house where it just feels like oh they're kind of being like pithy and especially Faye Dunaway feels like she is go still in mommy dearest mode like she's still left over from that kind of like campiness so that's still sprinkled over into this and it does feel very much like a different movie entirely than what's going on but at the same time that's the more fun movie agreed she's being more over the top and far more interesting than. The rest of the film it feels like Faye Dunaway understood what the assignment should be yeah that's true and because like and th- like I would love the movie if it was really on their wavelength where there's mm-hmm. so much about how like her trying to create potions and uh Brenda Vaccaro just being like I don't know this is gonna work honey I don't know and then like they're doing stuff like they when they're looking into a magic mirror in one point and they can see Supergirl, and then she disappears. It's like, what? What? Show her back up. Like, I don't know. I just started that. Like, she's sorceress in training. I love that element of it, where it's just like, oh, she doesn't really know how this works, but she's like, I can kind of figure this out. Like, there's a lot of really fun stuff there. It's just that then we have to go over to poor Helen Slater being slayed with either, like, the uh, schoolgirl stuff or being romanced by Hart Bachner, who, keep in mind, is mostly still under, like, a spell at this point. So it's really kind of like there's levels of creepy weirdness that's Mm -hmm. going on there. And as you mentioned, also just like, how old is she? And she's, like, with this guy who looks clearly like an adult man. It's weird. I don't know what they're going for there. And also, at the end, Lucy Lane makes out with Jimmy Olsen, who's... An- yeah, another instance of a school schoolgirl making out with a working man. What the fuck is going on? Yeah, especially like if I was Lois Lane, just like what you're you're romancing my little sister <laughs> who's in like the private school. Jimmy, fuck off! What are you doing? <laughs> oh fucking hell! Uh, the eighties, man. Yes, the eighties. Um, I will say at least this much. Um, I think this is very bad. I would still yeah. say I dislike Superman three a bit more. 
I think that one is more of like an unfun comedy, especially considering like Superman is even in less of that than he is in any of the other Superman movies specifically. Um, I would say, gun to my head, I would watch Supergirl over that one. I think I'd agree, because as much as I think there's a charm to the whole Superman being a dick by correcting the Leaning Tower of Pisa, stuff like that, it's weighed down by Richard Pryor's stuff. Yeah, yeah, I would say. But um, how do you feel also in terms of, like, you know, this was a more innocent time for the superhero movie, um, obviously, Mm because Superman had really been the only big franchise from around that era, um, and this is even pre, you know, Timber and Batman. Um, And now... We have so much of, like, you know, spinoffs of different characters in either DC or Marvel. We're going to be getting another mm-hmm. Supergirl in another movie soon. Though, um, you know, not necessarily a movie I want to see because it's going to be in The Flash. And there's a whole <laughs> lot of problems with The Flash and seeing it on, like, an ethical level. Um, but mm-hmm. how do you feel this, like, sort of um, contrast with, like, the modern superhero um, maybe fatigue. I don't know. I, we haven't talked in a bit, Jim, so I don't know if you were in that kind of like fatigue with uh, the superhero stuff as much as I have been vocally on the show as of recent. I was like you, um, big into Marvel, but since the pandemic came back, since we got Four Love and Thunder and um, Marvel capitalizing on nostalgia and giving aboard John Krasinski a prominent role in Sam Raimi's latest film. I have just grown bored of the latest Marvel stuff. I haven't even seen Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. The Disney Plus stuff has mainly just passed me by. I haven't been interested in watching that stuff, and it's a shame. Um, The DC stuff, I feel like there's a lot more potential there. But at the same time, Ezra Miller, that kind of stuff really weighs it down. And I mean, yeah, when Supergirl came out, there was only really one big superhero franchise. And it felt like it could be a bit weirder. It could just have Supergirl fighting a supernatural a supernatural woman who wants to rule the world and is over the top about it it can have a moment where she just yeah uses her heat vision to make a flower bloom it can just have her randomly changing into clothes because i guess that's a power of hers now it just feels of a different time but at the same time it's more interesting because it's something which couldn't probably couldn't be done today because everything's got to fit into some kind of box in its own way and it's an interesting piece in its own right i think despite i might not be able to consider it a good film or even an interesting film no yeah i think that that's the thing is that i think there are other sort of like spinoff stuff as of recent with like the superheroes that were like, I would say they are more competently made and better mm-hmm. movies than this necessarily. But there is kind of like an interesting charm in terms of like, you know, sort of like the wobbly baby legs of this movie where it's just like, Oh, we're <laughs> going to do a Superman movie, but Superman's not in it, but maybe this will work. It doesn't. And this baby in this case is like taking its first steps and falling on its face and crying. Um, but there's a charm that's kind of there 
that I do kind of like respect a bit, but at the same time, it still does not make this like anywhere near good or even like a fun, bad watch, anything like that. This is definitely like too boring, quite frankly, for me to like have that kind of investment, even though there's like a couple like funny bits, like particularly once we get to like um, Kara is thrust into the Phantom Zone and she ends up seeing Peter O'Toole again. And there's a lot of like that's where the special effects budget starts to clearly dwindle. <laughs> uh, where there's just, like, the, the big tornado that happens and, like, the, the whole thing where she has to, like, during the climax, be inspired by Peter O'Toole's words. Where, like, she can't just have that kind of, like, thing inside her of just, like, no, I can summon the strength from within. She has to hear Peter O'Toole say, like, you can do it, Kara. <laughs> After he'd been thrown into a tornado in a very comical special effect in the Phantom Zone and stuff like that. Um, there's stuff like that that I think is, like, kind of, like, oh, it's charming for its limitations. Um, mm. But... Yeah, as it, it still is overall just like such a deal. I think honestly, if you cut all the bullshit at that school, this would be like a f- very bad but fun movie. I think because it's I can't believe how like the stuff in the school takes up like a solid twenty minutes in the middle of this fucking movie, <laughs> and it's like we really don't need that or like Lois Lane's sister any of that shit. If you just cut all that fat. And just made this, like, the movie we're talking about, where it's just, like, it's Supergirl versus Witch over this man who's kind of a damsel in distress. Like, that sounds like a fun movie. That could be, like, kind of cheesy and charming in its own right, as opposed to this just, like, pads shit out way too much. <laughs> and it's pretty dull, I would say. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily the best foot forward for a Superman spinoff film. Um, those are my final thoughts. James, do you have any final thoughts on Supergirl? See, you made a good point about it being too long with that padded out school stuff and funny enough that's something a lot of modern superhero films have in common cut that shit down we don't need to have it over two hours all the time very true um supergirl is a curious time capsule i can't say it's a fun watch i can't say it's a good film but at the very least it's interesting from that strange opening to the end when Kara goes home to bring back the power source and the lights turn on like she's walked in on a surprise party or something. It's... <laughs> I wish. Just there's a banner <laughs> and that weird fucking sit. Just like, ah, surprise, you're back! <laughs> um, it's not a good film. It's rather boring and dragged down, but at least Faye Dunaway's having a blast. I just wish more of that could have been reflected in the actual film itself. For sure, for sure. But we got to talk about a much better spinoff film in its own right uh, now, because we're moving on to our good film, Creed. You're not built for this. These boys come in here. They got to fight for life. People die in the ring. Your daddy died in the ring. I don't know him. Ain't got nothing to do with me. This picture's from the 10th round of the first fight, right? I heard about a third fight between you and Apollo. Behind closed doors. That true? How do you know all this? I'm a son. This guy here, that's the toughest opponent you're ever going to have to face. I believe that's true in the ring, and I think that's true in life. Now show me something. 
So Creed came out November 25th, 2015 from director, co-writer Ryan Coogler. And of course, this is uh, part of the Rocky franchise. There had been six movies with Rocky in the title before this. And Sylvester Stallone just reprised his role here. But we mainly focus on the Adonis Creed character, who is the illegitimate son of Apollo Creed, who was played by Carl Weathers in the original movie. So before we get into anything about Creed, James, what is your relationship with the Rocky franchise? There was a large point in my life where... I would say how I had never seen Rocky and people would just be shocked by it. I just was never interested in this film until I heard Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan were making Creed because I had watched their previous film, Fruitvale Station, and Mm -hmm. adored it. And that got me interested in Creed. So it finally gave me the push to go through the Rocky franchise and I do quite like it, the early films especially, but I do feel the series goes downhill after the first film until Rocky Balboa bucks the trend by being excellent. And I got all caught up in time for Creed when it came out here. It was like the January or February the year in 2016 after, right. after the US got it because... Um, UK has to get things late, especially Oscar stuff. Dear God. But I was just blown away by Creed. And hot take, this is my favorite entry in the entire Rocky universe. I went through the Rocky franchise and I was like, yeah, I like going through that, but I can't see myself going back to any of them. I've seen Creed three times and it's I'm definitely going to see it a lot more because I absolutely love this film well i'll say that um i had gone for a while where i'd only seen the original rocky when i was mm-hmm. younger um i loved the original rocky. i still i think the original rocky is one of my favorite movies of all time i think that movie's just such a perfectly constructed kind of like underdog story about just like this guy who's clearly down his luck and it feels very authentic and grimy in that 70s way but still very sweet and sincere and like a big blockbuster kind of like uh, crowd pleaser movie that still thing's like so perfectly constructed. And I think Rocky is one of the more consistent franchises out there. I would say I like pretty much all of the Rocky sequels aside from five. Mm-hmm. Like that, we talked about five on the show previously. Uh, that one is easily the worst one by quite oh, yeah. a large margin. But I like a lot of the other ones, even when it gets sillier. Like I would say, like Rocky Three, I think is the height of the fun, sillier ones for me with Mr. Mm-hmm. T and everything. I think that one's charming. Even Rocky Four, the ultimate montages, I think is really fun. Uh, Two has some charms, and I do agree though. I think Balboa is my favorite. Like the the sequels with Rocky in the title because mm-hmm. it kind of like brings him back down to earth and does a really beautiful job with it. Um, which is why when this was coming out, I was very worried because I thought Balboa, like a lot of people did, I thought Balboa was such a phenomenal kind of close to this, and we got like you know Stallone's swan song to that character and felt like a solid bow on the franchise so hearing they were doing creed i was like i don't know i did like fruitvale station as well so i'm like okay this could end up pretty well or it could be like this independent filmmaker making a entry in a franchise then completely you know being swallowed up into the franchise machine in a disappointing (laughs) way so it could have gone either way um and then i did see creed and while i don't think it is like the absolute best necessarily of the franchise to me 
I think it's like a very close number two to the original Rocky, which is so rare to have, especially with seven entries into a franchise and mm-hmm. this one being sort of like this off kilter spinoff. Um, at the same time, I, I think it, I agree with you that it's an incredible movie. I think it's a beautiful example of kind of how to do that same thing I was talking about earlier with the original Rocky of making like something that feels like very character focused and emotional and powerful, but at the same time, an amazing crowd pleaser movie. Um, I'll get to it later, but I Creed also was just one of the best experiences I've ever had in the movie theater. I'll go into more Ooh. detail with that, but I think it's one of my favorite theatrical experiences I've ever had. But before we get into that, so the big thing with this movie is obviously, as I mentioned, that we follow Adonis Creed is played by um, Michael B. Jordan, who initially is uh, Adonis Johnson, who um, is the illegitimate son of Apollo Creed, who gets adopted by Apollo Creed's wife, uh, Marianne Creed, played by Felicia Rashad here. And it's an interesting, I think, setup where... To contrast with, like, what Rocky, who was, like, this guy who was a, a bum in Philadelphia, had no kind of, like, real, like, connections or big-time goals. He was just kind of like a dude who boxed and didn't have much of a life. As opposed to Adonis um, is a guy who initially came from sort of, like, he was, you know, going from foster home to foster home. He had been thrown into, like, a juvenile center, and then he gets swept back up um, into the creed of it all when he finds out his actual lineage. So he's a guy who initially came from nothing, but at a very early stage in his life got everything he could ever want, like big palatial house, like so much money, a great job, as we see earlier on, but he has that instinct to be a boxer, and that's the clash here there, and I think that's such a fascinating way of differentiating this from Rocky, where it's just like, we're not telling the exact same story, because this guy has a lot already, like he's got, he wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth, but he got that silver spoon pretty early, and so he can actually like, do a lot of different stuff, but he wants to go back into this, because it's more of like his passion, and he eventually realizes like, oh, it's something that's kind of like in my blood, and I have to kind of like, struggle with that. You think that's a solid, different take for like a Rocky-style movie, where you have that kind of origin for the character? I think this film does really well to set it apart from the Rocky franchise. And I, yeah, I think that's down to how they examine Donnie as a character. There's that scene early on where Marianne says to uh, Adonis about the hard times uh, Apollo faced behind closed doors, where after fights he couldn't get up the stairs or even clean himself. And despite Donnie knowing that, what the end result was for his father, he still has that desire. And I think that adds this fantastic layer about the weight of legacy, which Donnie feels he has massive expectations put on his shoulders because of who his father is. But I feel that's also reflected really well in the film because it's living up to massive expectations of the Rocky franchise particularly that first one and i think it's captured so very well and michael b jordan is phenomenal in that lead role i mean he's so naturally charismatic but he also has moments where he conveys his inner worries about not living up to his dad's name he gives one of my favorite performances in the 2015 film and okay i know oscars and award season it's all meaningless at the end of the day. It's it's not the be all end all of these films. I don't know what you're talking about. Everyone's still talking about Coda. Come on, James. <laughs> Everyone still wa- loves and watches Coda, last year's Best Picture winner. Oh yeah, that and Green Book are mainstays in everyone's households. Exactly. Everyone has a DVD copy that's right <laughs> next to their TV. Everyone loves it. Uh, but despite all that, I 
I'm baffled that Michael B. Jordan was not Oscar nominated for this. I mean, okay, look at the performances there from that year. I lo- okay, I like Michael Fassbender and Steve Jobs, but really, um, Brian Cranston in Trumbo, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant. Um, oh, how was Eddie Redmayne in The Danish Girl considered more fucking award worthy than Michael B. Jordan? Ugh. Yeah, no. especially Brian Cranston Trumbo is especially like the worst offender to me for that. Where even though I've, Eddie Redmayne's very offensive for a lot of reasons, mm. but Trumbo it's like Brian Cranston's in a fucking bathtub like half that movie, <laughs> and it's like Oscar, great, wonderful. It's just like I don't know, man. Why are we doing? I agree with you. I think Jordan does such a phenomenal job in this movie, especially with playing a guy who has like a believable temper. Which I think is like so hard to like convey. I think even Creed Two, while I do like it, I think has some of these problems where like conveying that kind of like makes it like a dude who's like genuinely investing and who you wanna like root for, but at the same time has a lot of believable reasons like why he would like be like very up in arms about people calling him Creed, baby Creed, like as he does throughout the movie. Kind of like in his, in his and his origin point where he got into a lot of fights when he was like not in foster care and juvenile detention mm-hmm. center and stuff like that. I, I believe that guy is hot headedness. So I can believe why that would get in the way with, like, his boxing or his life in general. You know, that, that inner struggle, I think, really seems believable, especially with that great moment involving him and Stallone once he actually starts training him about, like, the biggest guy you have to fight in the ring is right there. And he looks at the mirror reflection, just like this guy. I believe that in boxing. I believe that in life. Your biggest opponent you always face off against is that guy. And I think it's a movie about that kind of inner struggle, about being someone who, like, does not have, like, true self-respect and so that really hinders his ability to, like, move forward in life and not dwell on the past. And I think it's even a case with, like, to contrast him with Rocky, who's in a similar boat, just, like, very stuck in the past, very much stuck in, like, oh, I remember my Adrian and how much I loved her and I can't move on and I can't, like, confront my son, who I haven't talked to in a while because he just can't, like, he's still stuck in that one place in Philadelphia. Mm. And I think, like, that contrast between the two of them is so beautiful to where, you know, I agree that I think Jordan should have gotten more recognition, but Sylvester Stallone did get a lot of recognition for this, was nominated for an Oscar mm-hmm. Best Supporting Actor, lost to Mark Rylance and Bridge of Spies, which is a big point of contention for a lot <laughs> oh, of people yeah. that he ended up losing. Uh, and, you know, as much as Stallone at this point has been, like, in so many sort of caricatured kind of roles, like, very much is known for, like, the sort of parodies of Rocky, kind of, like, making him kind of a joke to some extent, um, he's always been so phenomenal in that role, and I think particularly here in Creed, it is such a beautiful example of just, like, a guy who does totally feel just like his life is behind him, his good, all of his good times are in the past, as he says at one point, just like, look, up on that wall, that's where I am, gone, forgotten, that's all who I am, and it's, it's a beautiful performance from him as well. He is so good, I mean, yeah, the character took some turns towards... Car- the cartoonish in the in the earlier films but this film really brings him back down to earth and it's at that point when he gets that cancer diagnosis and you just feel that he's he's lived his life he just wants to be reunited with his wife he's happy to let his story end there and it's throughout the film you had Stallone and Jordan have just a wonderful pairing you really believe in their relationship as donnie gets the closest thing he's ever had to a father figure so when you've got that later point when rocky says to him how they aren't a real family that just breaks your heart and that comes back when he's grappling with the news of rocky's cancer and yeah when he's later in the jail cell and rocky's trying to mend bridges in a way and 
And Adonis, his anger comes out as he says how Rocky got his real family killed. It's heartbreaking and you feel it in both of those performers. Stallone was really damn good. And yeah, I I haven't seen Bridge of Spies, but from what I've seen, Stallone deserved that award. He was just brilliant in this yeah, I like Mark Rylance and Bridge of Spies, but I would still say I agree. I think this is the the stronger performance, and nothing else would have been the rare example of like a genuinely great performance that also doubled as a career award for Stallone. Because oftentimes it's way more of like a career award someone's given for a performance that doesn't deserve it necessarily, as opposed to it would have been like that's the rare like Venn diagram that's perfect. Just like that would have worked perfectly for him. But regardless of him winning an award for it or not, um, it's such a beautiful performance where I agree. As like we we go along with that cancer diagnosis, that that beautiful moment where he's talking to uh, the doctor and she tells it to him and she's like, "But we can start chemo and it can be." you know, we caught it early, we can help you get through this right away. And it's just like, you know, my wife went through that and it didn't really turn out so good. So I'm not gonna, I, I'm, I think I'm good. Thank you for your time. Like that's the thing, Rocky, what I love so much about him as a character in the earlier movies is like, he's so nice. He's such a, like, he's a dummy, yeah. but he's so incredible, like nice and well-meaning and doesn't assume the worst out of people. And like, as you go along through like all these movies, like how he becomes like such a big celebrity, but at the same time he just does not let that go to his head at all. Like when he's like trying to train Creed, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, it's a champ! It's Rock!" He's like, "Hey, how you doing? Yeah, I'm just training him real quick over here." Like it's <laughs> it, there's such a like a beautiful charm that's there with that, but it doesn't like Sloan doesn't let his laurels like rest on that necessarily in any of these movies. I think every time Rocky still feels at the same time that he can be in like silly situations, like giving a fucking robot to his brother-in-law in four and shit like that um he still is like consistently like a very grounded human person even if he's going through silly over-the-top situations and i think in this movie in particular it does such a beautiful job with like allowing him to do that while also still having a bit of that humor at the same time like i love so much the bit where um uh, adonis comes up to him when he's trying to unpack stuff for his restaurant and they're try- he's like giving him moves and stuff like that and then he takes a picture of like all the notes that rocky he did for him just like oh well, hey don't you want this paper it's like i know i got it here what if you break that thing it's in the cloud and fucking rocky looks up and says, what cloud <laughs> what, that's a perfect rocky joke where like he would be that specific kind of dumb where he does not know what an iCloud is but it's just like no you know what it's 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 so charming at the same time that it's a very beautiful nuanced performance it's also just it's rocky at his most charmingly dumb agreed that's the cloud moment is the perfect way to highlight maybe a generational difference or um, an unfamiliarity with technology without feeling like an okay boomer moment. Right, yeah, because it's still coming from Rocky wanting to be emotionally intuitive. He still wants to help out Adonis, just like, you might need this people later. <laughs> like, you might need this to help you out. Um, it, it, that's the thing, is that that's why I've loved in his the best of the Rocky movies, is that emotional intuition that makes up for Rocky's intellectual uh, lesser points necessarily he's, he's always very mm. emotionally intuitive which especially works out with another person we haven't mentioned yet but i think is like so crucial to this movie as well is uh tessa thompson who ends up being the love interest character for adonis and you know we could risk having her just be like another adrian or even a lesser character but mm. i love their relationship and how that blossoms with like her playing her music and him coming down and then like inviting her out to dinner and even like um that she loves music so much but she has this uh progressive hearing loss that she's dealing with. 
So she knows, like, yeah, it's finite, but at the same time, I, I just want to keep doing what I love as long as I can, which makes her a perfect sort of, like, equal with uh, Adonis, where they both are just, like, people who are dealing with careers that, for both of them, are finite. With, like, mm-hmm. he can't box forever, she can't sing forever, but they really love being able to do what they can while they can, and especially once it, that it ends up sparking the relationship that really blossoms wonderfully throughout this whole movie, and I love, like, their, their back and forth. It's really charming. It doesn't feel like we're just recycling, like, the Rocky-Adrian relationship, because she feels like a completely different woman who's, like, not at all mm-hmm. shy, very much, like, open and... Um, very like sly and sarcastic and charming. Her and Jordan have beautiful chemistry together. I love how their relationship develops over this. And even in Creed too, I think the strongest stuff is their relationship in that movie. Agreed. Tessa Thompson is fantastic as Bianca. And I loved how there's that moment where Donnie pretty much punches her headliner at her show. And he comes around to apologize and explains what's going on with Rocky. It could have been very much just paper over the cracks. Like, oh, it's okay. Let's move on. She understands what Donnie's going through, but she still doesn't let him off easy because he still worked through his emotions by assaulting someone. The moment where she turns off a hearing aid while he's outside the door is honestly heartbreaking. And that's because you have these two characters who have been wonderfully developed from their initial meeting over the loud music to their fun little moment in a restaurant where she's teaching him the ASL for bullshit. And it's wonderful to see them um, just united and working together throughout that uh, by the end as they come through it all. Plus, it helps that you have two really hot people sharing some wonderful chemistry. Very true. Very true. Yes. Uh, and also, I love that bit where she doesn't know that he's a creed until like it kind of slips out at a certain <laughs> point and like like have a confrontation about it. And just like I, you know, I I don't care that you're that guy. I just would want you to be honest with me about that, especially since it's something that you're kind of dealing with and boiling over. And I like how even when you get to that point later on, where like the assault feels like it's a much better example of like in a lesser movie. I think you would have had like, oh, you're a creed and you didn't tell me. We're breaking off for a bit. And then mm-hmm. reunite with you. And I think the the assault thing feels like more realistic, just like you're you're yes. kind of showing me you're a bit more dangerous in a way that I don't really like necessarily. But then they do reunite and I love that scene too. It's a great example of how Rocky enters into like their relationship where like they're at the hotel in Vegas right before the fight and Rocky keeps looking over at the door. <laughs> he's like he's too early <laughs> every day. He's like, Oh, did you hear something? Beat, beat, beat. Oh, look, someone's knocking at the door. <laughs> and then they reunite. It's very sweet, but then Rocky's just like, hey, you know, I'm just leaving you kids alone. Hey, remember what I said about legs? Women weak in legs. <laughs> it's, it's very charming, especially like the three of them, and especially even like her, uh, Bianca and Rocky. I do love how they kind of like still have like a, a really positive connection with like the bit where they're at the dinner table. Just like, oh, I can't, this is so different from what I normally eat. It's usually covered in sauce. And they're all like, really charmed by it. And there's one little bit I love when, um, Donnie's moving out to go stay with Rocky for training and Bianca shouts him like that's your uncle but he's white and Rocky's just like yeah all my life and, <laughs> and she's just like look I, you didn't tell me your uncle was Rocky Balboa <laughs> yes <laughs> it's, it's really charming there yeah and then of course this is a boxing movie. We have to get to some of the boxing sequences because along with being a really great emotional character study it's so well shot 
whenever we get to the boxing sequences. You are like fully oh, yeah. immersed. Like the way, especially during like that first fight where it's um, Creed versus that one guy who's like uh, the son of the guy who owns the gym, who owns mm-hmm. Mickey's gym at this point. That fight is so well shot where like the, the camera is right there with the fight and it's like this big one shot but it doesn't feel as like showy and annoying as like a lot of one shots like you mentioned the revenant earlier where that's yeah. where he just like loves to like dwell in a masturbatory fashion about its one shots versus the one shot helps to serve the fact that like you're in the middle of this like huge boxing match and you are just like with those guys that they go across like to each corner and go over to their managers and stuff like that it is one of like all the fight sequences are beautifully put together in this movie oh yeah you've got yeah, that one-shot fight is just so phenomenally done. And then you've got that final fight where you feel every blow and the blood splatter on the ring, it's all impactful. It's so great. But I love how, through it all, Ryan Coogler doesn't forget the human stuff. So before his first big fight, Donnie gets nervous and he has to cut the gloves off, as I referenced at the beginning, because he desperately needs to shit. Or after that fight when they're him bianca and rocky are just all excited and they're like yeah let's go tear up the town and then next thing they're f- asleep on the sofa while watching skyfall right and then also the right before that final fight when he gets the fucking trunks one of many oh, examples yeah. of where i'm just i'm fucking crying man like that's the thing a great rocky movie makes me fucking well up with tears the original mm-hmm. rocky that whole climax like the moment adrian pops up i'm just like i'm gone i'm i can't see the movie anymore i'm like fucking mm-hmm. crying my, my eyes out this movie has a great job of that where so many of these like little moments that are like could just be really bad fan service but really work to like get you invested in like what the like legacy that we're dealing with and all this stuff. because you mentioned it's kind of like a weird meta contextual thing where it's a dealing up with the legacy of both the Rocky franchise and for Adonis like the legacy of Creed and all this mm-hmm. like it really helps like get you invested to where like any of those like callbacks or shout outs from the earlier movies just feel like we're weaving the tapestry of, of the world these characters where it isn't oh, yeah. just like a wink and a nod it's like no it actually means something like early on when Adonis first meets Rocky at the restaurant it's just like oh I heard you had a fight with Apollo behind closed doors running the thing from Rocky 3 that's mm-hmm. just a great example of like that feels just like family history instead of just like oh remember that at the end of Rocky 3 trivia let me explain to you this easter egg everybody <laughs> it, like it actually means something for the characters the film does this wonderful thing where all throughout you hear hints of bill conti's iconic song you also have characters getting to the heart of donnie they question like what's motivating you and what are you afraid of and it feels like yeah donnie's fighting to get out of his father's shadow throughout the film but in a meta contextual level he's also fighting to get out of rocky's shadow in the audience's eyes and once the news comes out that Donnie is Creed's son. They immediately jump on him, calling him an embarrassment. They compare him to his father. It's stuff Donnie didn't want because he doesn't want a bad reputation to his father's legacy. But the film also includes great moments where they put this brand new spin of this character doing these classical moments, such that you got Donnie, he's running through the streets of Philadelphia while he's outrunning the bikes that he previously commented on, and it's such a lovely moment. And I feel it all bubbles up until that final fight when Donnie just lets out how he's trying to prove he wasn't a mistake, and that moment chokes me up every time I see it, and it leads perfectly to my favourite moment in the film, where Rocky just tells him, you're a creed now. And it's like he's saying, you're the rightful heir to this legacy your father built. You deserve this. You are not a mistake. 
you've been working towards it and he would be proud of you but he's it feels like he's also telling audiences this character is the right person to carry on this legacy that Sloane built ever since the first Rocky film and then when Donnie stands up for the final round and gonna find out just plays oh you feel it and I'm just so energized and I'm like I might as well be jumping out my seat and just going yes Creed well I guess that that's a segue I guess into the theater experience I was talking about earlier when I watched this in the theater most of it was just like a normal like kind of like really fun like it was a packed house it was like the Thursday night this is Thanksgiving so of course Mm -hmm. this is in the states like everyone went out to the movies it was like that night before Thanksgiving and everyone was like you know charmed by it like like a solid theater audience then during that final fight people in my audience were literally cheering Creed on like they could fucking hear him (laughs) like like, (laughs) Creed could hear them basically and it's like, one of the best moments was, like, in any other audience experience, it'd be just like, sit the fuck down, what are you doing? But I'm just like, you know what, I'm swept up with everybody, yeah, I'm not gonna get up. Like, people were fucking cheering on Creed. That's, like, such the power of, like, what you're talking about. Where so much of this stuff has been building up so perfectly to where it's not just, like, you know, a big, like, Easter egg fest, like, referencing things from earlier mm-hmm. movies kind of deal. It is genuinely building up a great arc for, like, this character who we've grown to love. With lots of, like, even a great sequence that uh, we didn't talk about, but the press conference before the Fight happens where he actually comes oh, yeah. face to face for the first time with uh, Tony Bello as pretty Ricky. Um, is like a great example where he is like it's building up a lot of that conflict, but in a way where like Rocky says like this is the first fight, this is the first part of the fight where you have to realize like he's gonna try and get you to say something, do something. He does end up like agitating uh, Adonis to do something, and he ends up losing that particular fight. But I think it's like it, it's all part of, like sort of the, the that um, early build up stuff works, and especially the fact that like Pretty Ricky is a great example of like a in a, the Rocky villain pantheon of somebody who kind of mirrors the our main character, where he has a similar kind of like hothead energy like he's been accosting people outside the fights and stuff like that mm-hmm. and um so all that stuff helps to build up like you mentioned like that final fight i do agree with you it was like so beautifully done especially even the main thing you forgot about stallone's speech to adonis is you're a creed and i love you so it's not oh, only yeah. like oh you're worthy of the legacy of your father but also i love you like a father and you mean so much to me and i want you to like do this because i know you can and, like, even, like, what people down there, like, even Felicia Rashad, when she's on her fucking couch, she's just like, yeah, <laughs> hell yeah, baby, you do it. And then later on, which is, he references, like, I want to thank my mom who's watching. I love you, mom. I'm, I hope you're okay over there. She's like, and you're the gave me a heart attack, but I'm okay. I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like that. It's so charming. And, yeah, I, I agree that, especially even when he's getting interviewed, and just like, what would you uh, say to your, fa- your father to Apollo if he was here? And he just is just like, tell him that, you know, I hope he's proud, and, and I, I'm... I'm happy to keep living on his legacy. Just all that stuff. It's so emotionally gut-wrenching. It's so beautiful. And this is all the stuff even after, like, all the cancer stuff with Rocky, which Mm. is, like, the big thing is, like, the, you know, sort of him training Adonis also coincides with Adonis helping Rocky through his cancer and eventually, like, kind of beating it. And I just love that where it's, like, he even says, just, like, you know, if you're going to fight, I'll fight too. And that's such a beautiful thing to lead up to once again, these two becoming like a, a real family to where by the end of that, another great example of like doing, you know, the the kind of like callbacks in a beautiful way, them very delicately going up the stairs mm-hmm. to the Philadelphia Art Museum 
and they're still having a bit of jokes just like no old man you gotta go all the way up it's like let me catch my breath hold on so like it's 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 really <laughs> beautifully charming and uh, t- to the degree that yeah it's it's such a great fucking movie and so I'm, I'm curious how do you feel about sort of them continuing this as its own franchise we've had creed 2 mm-hmm. and we're about to get creed 3 with michael b jordan making his directorial debut and jonathan major is one of his many uh, attempts to take over cinema right now uh between being kang and all these other things where he's popping up how do you feel about like creed continuing as a franchise in its own way we had this first film establishing creed and his part in the rocky universe and we had this second film which well dealt with the fallout of rocky 4 and because yeah if you're gonna do Apollo creed's son that's the elephant in the room that needs addressing so yeah it's it's a money maker so yeah they i guess they gotta continue on when i'm happy for it as long as the films keep engaging me but i'm glad that the series seems to be going in a way to forge its own history and its own groundwork with the characters rather than relying on what rocky previously built and um jonathan majors yeah you've got my attention he's i've only seen him in the five bloods but i thought he was phenomenal i want to see more of him and i'll happily take more of him and michael b jordan's directing it feels like more like it's connecting to the rocky franchise because sylvester stallone directed so many of those uh sequels and i'm an anime fan michael b jordan saying he turned to anime for influence in creed free i'm their opening night I've heard a lot of the early reviews, too, are very much like it's an anime-influenced boxing movie. Just like, even as a non-anime fan, I'm just like, okay, that sounds weird. <laughs> I haven't seen that before. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Um, but yeah, and I think, I, I am a bit curious, because like, I I like Creed 2. I have some mm-hmm. issues I revisited recently. I, I have some things where it's like, I think they pull back Adonis's character development a lot in that movie. That's my biggest problem with it. Mm-hmm. It feels like he just kind of becomes that hothead again for reasons I can understand, given it's like the son of the guy who killed his father and all that. I get mm-hmm. some of that, but it feels like they really pulled back too much. And it feels a bit more like kind of like, because Stallone actually wrote that one. He didn't write Creed. And it feels like there's a bit more of like the Stallone-isms coming into that character in a way I was still, like, I liked it, but still was not huge on this. That's probably, I would say, the weakest Rocky movie I still kind of like is Creed II. Um, but mm-hmm. at the same time, there's still great stuff like Dolph Lundgren and all that. There's, there's there's interesting elements that kept it fascinating for me. And especially this new one being one, no Stallone in it at all, because he's just a producer, because he's been mm. in those big conflicts with Erwin Winkler, the big guy who's been producing all these movies, where like he was on Instagram calling him like a bloodsucker, and his family had like a weird photoshopped image of like vampire Erwin Winkler sucking blood out of Rocky's neck and shit. What? Like, okay. Jesus Christ! It's really weird. <laughs> that's that's why he's not in Creed three. So there, there's that element of it, and there's also even just the thing with Jonathan Majors' character. Like from what I understand, based on the trailers, he's a guy from Creed's past who apparently there was like a conflict that like Creed was involved in as a kid. They end up skirting out of, and Jonathan Majors went to prison for it, and now he's back mm-hmm. to fight him. That's never been done in a Rocky movie, which I'm really surprised by, honestly, that, like, Rocky never fought somebody who was from his own past, like, pre-even the first movie. It's so weird that it has never happened before, because it's a perfect kind of confrontation set up for a boxing movie. Oh, shit, that's a good point. Right, so, like, I'm very, I was very compelled the moment I heard that's what it was, I'm like, okay, that's different. 
very curious to see how, like, the emotional drives, particularly, that takes it down. And even, you know, still more stuff with, like, you know, his daughter uh, as established in Creed 2 and all this other stuff. I think there's a lot of directions that can go down that I'd be curious <laughs> about. Um, I don't necessarily want to go into the degree of, like, oh, by the fourth one, um, fucking Wood Harris gets a robot or something <laughs> like that. I don't want that necessarily. Um, but... Yeah, I agree that I think Creed can still, like, have its own direction with this and still be, like, a really fun, consistent franchise that still, like, lives up to the legacy fully of, like, what Rocky did originally. So I'm all on board for Creed 3 as well. But, James, we've been talking quite a lot about Creed, so any final potential thoughts you have about Creed 2015? I adore this film. I think it captures the heart of the original Rocky about... It's not about the title character winning at the end. It's about proving who they are and what they can do and proving those doubters wrong. And I think it's just a very wonderful film about these characters. I really enjoy watching and it grabs my heart, particularly by the end. And those action scenes, though fighting good God, they're so good. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I second all of that. I think it's a great movie. I think it's a great example, not just of doing a spinoff, but even, like, the, the term legacy sequel, where mm-hmm. you have, like, sort of a, a new person following the footsteps of, like, a person from an earlier part of a franchise. I think this is probably the greatest example of how to do that effectively for me, where it has just enough, like, continuity references to the original franchise, but also has a lot more interesting, different stuff that it does. Um, I think it is just incredible. Great performance all around. Wonderful direction from Coogler. Ryan Coogler, after this, he did Black Panther, which I thought was pretty tremendous, and Black mm-hmm. Panther, Wakanda Forever. Um, pretty good despite every single thing that could possibly go wrong going wrong on that yes. production. Uh, yeah, so I know he still is like he's apparently signed up to do like some kind of Black Panther show with Disney Plus or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like whatever. But at the same time, like I just want that dude to like keep being able to do like great things. I think he's an incredible director based on like Fruitvale Station, mm-hmm. this and the two Black Panther movies. I just want him to do interesting different stuff. And I hope he doesn't, like I mentioned, get swallowed up into the franchise machine because he also feels like one of the rare guys who like actually took a few steps. Cause usually when you get like somebody directing a Marvel movie, it's some guy who made like an extremely small budget movie. And then like, Hey, guess what? You get $200 million to make a big superhero movie. Then you get to do that. He at least had this step with Creed, which is still a franchise movie, but only cost $35 million. Mm. So yeah, I hopefully he gets to do like other interesting things that aren't Marvel related, but we'll see. But now everybody, it's time for the weekly segment, the double redo. Double redo. Double redo. Double redo. Double redo. Double redo. Double 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 redo. That works. So the Double Redo is a segment that uh, we usually do every week here. In addition to the movies we covered on the show, uh, we uh, recommend a good movie relating to the topic and steer you away from a bad one. And so I'm going to go ahead and start here with uh, my good spin-off movie. I'm going to mention here was my alternate choice we almost would have done on the show. Um, I have the Lego Batman movie, which is technically a spin-off to uh, the Lego movie which featured Batman as played by Will Arnett as in a supporting role. And then he got his own Lego Batman movie, which I was very worried, like, oh, I don't know, the Lego movie was such a big surprise, this is going to work out that well. And I think that 
the Lego Batman movie is pretty fucking great. I think it's a great example of like a, another thing that's like very reverent to the original franchise uh, to the just not even just like Batman in movies, but even just Batman as a huge source material to dwell from. But at the same time, it does have its own story about like Batman basically taking on a ward in the form of Robin voiced by Michael Sarah, and uh, him kind of like realizing like, oh, I don't have to be like a loner brooding like doofus uh, superhero. I can be part of a family. Which also involves like Batgirl, played by Rosario Dawson, and Alfred, played by Ray Fiennes. It's a very funny, incredibly heartfelt kids movie that's like so chock full of jokes. There's like a Joker's played by Zach Galifianakis in here, and the whole relationship with him and Batman, where like Batman says like I don't even think about you that much, but it's like but I thought I was your arch enemy. What? Like it's almost like a weird rom com relationship they have in the middle of this is very like funny, but also speaks to like the sort of the idea of like Joker being his opposite, but permeates throughout like fandom and writing about comics and stuff um i think it's just like such a fun and oddly moving little movie that still works with like all the like fun creative stuff of like the lego movie and like the animation still incredible so many great jokes per minute everything like that i think it's an incredible little movie and it's a bummer that you know right afterward that lego ninjago movie came out and then not too long after the lego movie 2 came out and really sunk that franchise hard because especially if you've heard any of the stuff they said that they were going to do with, like, the Lego Batman 2 would have been, like, a sort of Justice League kind of movie where you would have had, like, Superman and Green Lantern have, like, bigger roles. That would have been so fun and would have been, like, way better, quite frankly, than most of that DC Universe bullshit <laughs> that was going on at the time. Uh, but sadly, we didn't get that. But at least we have the Lego Batman movie, which is pretty great. And then for my bad spinoff, um, this is interesting because this is one where when I saw it in the theater, I actually kind of liked it. And then I revisited it while kind of marathoning again through the franchise and uh, my opinion really decreased for it i have uh the fast and furious presents hobbs and shaw which um is the, basically the spinoff that follows uh the hobbs character who was played by dwayne johnson in the fifth sixth and seventh fast and furious movies uh as well as the eighth um uh, kind of having a good cop bad cop relationship with uh the deckard shaw character who was a villain that was initially in a uh, fury seven and then showed up in eight in more of like a anti-hero role and now they're both kind of like playing off each other and i think this was around the time when like i really liked this as i said in the theater i thought it was fun but i remember i'd seen it like so divorced from the other fast and furious movies which i had only seen like once sort of prior and then when i marathoned them through and then led to hobbs and shaw i realized how much like it feels so diametrically uncouth for the franchise to me because the problem with Hobbs and Shaw is that, unlike the very sincere, very heartfelt Fast and Furious movies where they play all the dumb stuff, like, fully uh, open arms and, like, no kind of judgment, Hobbs and Shaw feels like it's so much more of, like, a traditional rock vehicle, and also very much more of, like, a traditional blockbuster from, like, you know, this recent era, where there's a lot of quips, and there's a lot of, like, oh, we're gonna trade off with each other, but the problem is that, like, that's not a good cop, bad cop thing with Hobbs and Shaw. They're both like the bad cop. They're not actually playing off of each other. They're just kind of like spitting barbs at each other and like bouncing off. And there's no like real fun to that. It just gets annoying after a while and grating. That's not helped by like, you know, appearances from like Kevin Hart and Ryan Reynolds and a lot of other stuff that just really sinks that movie down for me. It feels not even like it's much of a, you know, Fast and Furious movie. It just feels like it's this like script that would have been like written for ryan reynolds and dwayne johnson to do and they just kind of retrofit it into fast and furious and it feels like so like lifeless and emotionless the action scenes don't have any heart in them and just it, it, none of it really works that well for me except maybe the stuff when they um when the rock teams up with like his brother cliff curtis and they have kind of like their fight 
um, with like all the Samoans. I thought like that stuff was kind of fun, but that happens like two hours into that fucking movie, <laughs> and it's like it's it's it just doesn't work for me nearly as well. It's not the worst one in the Fast and Furious franchise for me, but it's a pretty good example to me of like how to do a spinoff that captures none of like the charm and the magic of its original forebearer. Okay, I've seen both of your choices, and I love the Lego Batman movie. I think it's one of the best Batman movies that's been done. It's one of my favorite takes on the character, and Will Arnett is so good at this version of Batman who buries his fears and pains under such bravado while pushing everyone away and learning to bond with this adorable, hope-filled little guy who's he's taken on unwittingly, to be honest. And I agree that the Batman-Joker relationship is so interesting in how they play it in rom-com standards, where the culmination comes down to Batman admitting his feelings for Joker. It's This came out a year after Suicide Squad, Jared Leto's take, and you could just feel this is how to do a good Joker after that car crash. As for Hobbs and Shaw, I too remember seeing it in cinemas and rather enjoying it at the time, but I haven't seen it since. And I, the only thing I can rem- remember is that Eddie Marsan pl- pops up and I believe he used as a flamethrower at one point. It's just not a film that's stuck in the mind. Um, when you mentioned Kevin Hart and Ryan Reynolds appearing, it's just triggered something in my mind that's like the bad memories flying back because even back then when I liked it their appearances just stopped the film dead just so Dwayne Johnson could hang out with his friends I guess I mean good for you Dwayne Go make another movie in the jungle. Yeah, go make another fucking Red Notice <laughs> with your buddies. But James, what about your choices for The Double Redo? Okay, so for both my choices, I've gone for British films. Gee, aren't I breaking through the stereotypes here? For my good movie, I'm going for 2019's a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. No, this is a sequel from the first Shaun the Sheep movie, which itself was a spin-off from the Shaun the Sheep TV show, which itself was a spin-off from Wallace and Gromit A Close Shave. So <laughs> quite a few layers to that. And in this second Shaun the Sheep movie, um, it f- follows on what worked so well with the first one in how they both utilise silent cinema as a reference point to tap into a universality, which has the character says so much and deliver such map last without uttering lines of dialogue. But where this follow-up differs is that it's also a love letter to science fiction. The film itself sees the residents of Mossy Bottom Farm, great name by the way, they're surprised when an adorable alien named Lula crashes, crashes her spaceship nearby. So what you essentially have is this plasticine take on E.T., where Sean and his fellow sheep sheep are trying to send Lula home while they're evading a sh- an organization that are trying to capture her for their own means. And you have this loving parody of science fiction that comes from a place of clear adoration, but it's also full of witty gags and utter charm. It's a wonderful little movie from Ardman. 
And for my bad movie, I'm going for a film that was released just last year called The Nan Movie. Now, this is a spin-off from The Catherine Tate Show, which was a popular sketch show in Britain that ran from 2004 to 2007, starring, oh, surprise, Catherine Tate. And in it, she played various characters who each had their own catchphrases. They included, like, a loudmouth teenager, a closeted gay man. I'm sure it worked very well when watched with today's eyes. And one of the more popular characters was this foul-mouthed nan who was sweet as pie to people's faces and then criticised them mercilessly behind their backs. So it was very surprising to hear that 15 years after the show ended, Nan was to return in a feature film from Mary Queen of Scots director Josie Rourke and written by Ted Lasso writer Brett Goldstein. Now, there's an interesting history to this film. It was intended as a thoughtful period piece set in 1940s London with the intention of finding the heart in this caricature of a monster to show that however horrible characters passed, it informed the person Nan became when viewers saw her in the sketch show. That all changed because reportedly the original cut of the film was presented in 2019 and the financial backers were worried because the film was straying too far from the show's original sketches. So they want it changed. So reshoots were ordered on the cheap without Rourke's involvement. And as such, the wartime scenes which were to make up the bulk of the film were cut back and a present-day road trip that was meant to be the film's framing device became the main bulk of the film. So now the film instead focused on Nan evading a vengeful traffic warden, Nan forcibly committing domestic terrorism and closes with her feeling better because the man she wished she married, she's glad she didn't because it turns out he likes to dress up in women's clothing. This was considered a complete movie which was given a wide release. There's some scenes which the reshoot budget could not cover. So the way they got around it was by having live action film suddenly, with no explanation, transition into the most ugly, cheap looking animation, which looks like newspaper clippings given the slightest, slightest bit of movement. It's horrendous to look it's astounding that in 2022 this shit got a fucking release in cinemas and because of all that drama we now have a mid-2000s relic that was released without accredited director and one of its stars matthew horn went to out and claimed that the reason this film failed at the box office was because of the war in ukraine this was easily the worst film I saw last year. And wow, don't watch it. Uh, yeah, so um, <laughs> I, I have not seen the Nan movie. Uh, I love when you mentioned that uh, you were going to put this as your bad pick. Um, I You described it to me, asking if I had any idea what it was. And I literally just responded with like, I know who Catherine Tate is. <laughs> I've seen like the the later episodes of the U.S. Office, and also I have seen her episodes of Doctor Who uh, and stuff like that. So I know who Catherine Tate is, and I think she's you know can be quite charming in the right spots. But you know, I'm at least glad that the Brits are keeping alive the era of bad SNL movies that we long got over in the states, because <laughs> that's <laughs> that's really what this sounds like. It's like a really bad like '90s era SNL movie. 
Um, but, you know, all of that detail is fascinating, especially the, the Brett Goldstein and uh, Josie Rourke of it all. Uh, that sounds right? fascinating, especially James shared a photo with me of, of, of still from the film. And uh, yeah, it looks rough. Real rough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I have seen uh, the Shaun the Sheep movies, both of them, and, and including Farmageddon. And I quite like them both. Um, not my favorite Ardmans necessarily, uh, mm. but I do agree that like they they work very well for being like these like there's no dialogue and stuff. It's very like silent comedy kind of thing, and I think they're both very charming. I would say I prefer the Shaun the Sheep movie, the first one, slightly. They're definitely ones that like appeal to like a whole family as opposed to just children kind of thing. I would definitely say anybody can uh, watch this and have a lot of fun with them. Um, but those are our titles, so we'll just go ahead and repeat them real quick. Um, my good pick was the Lego Batman movie. And my bad pick was The Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. And my good pick was a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. And my bad pick was the Nan movie. Yeah, so I guess uh, if you're in the States, fire up them VPNs if you want to somehow see the Nan movie. It is available to rent in America, I know that. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll all love it based on your glowing recommendation. (laughs) Uh, But... Um, before we get out of here and do our picking for next week, stay tuned for that at the very end of the episode. Um, we have some people to thank. Like we want to thank our, uh, uh, the person who does our music, Chris Oliver for our intro and outro music. Uh, listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at night of water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water for all of his great stuff. And uh, thanks of course to our supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash D E D B pod where for just uh, $1 a month, you get access to bonus podcasts that we do. Um, we do at least one a month, including around the time this uh, episode's come out. Uh, we would have already released recently our uh, first ever attempt at an award show, the Dubs Awards, where Adam and I, Adam came out of a sabbatical for this, uh, went through uh, 10 different categories and each had, you know, our five nominees for stuff like, you know, uh, the various performers of the year and the best films, animated, international best film overall, stuff like that. Um, that If you have, pay the $1, you can hear all two hours of that. That's a bonus content there for you before the Oscars, maybe after the Oscars, after they inevitably disappoint you with who they pick as their winners. Um, and, of course, also, uh, later on in March, our bonus episode will be our yearly March Madness, which uh, this time we're going to be doing Best Animated Film. And uh, around the time this comes out, you'll be able to see our seeding. We would have put that out for all the different titles, including a couple that were picked by our patrons. Um, And, you know, speaking of our patrons, uh, not only is he a guest on the show, but he also is a patron. James, thank you so much for being back on the show. Really appreciate you coming back on, helping me out, and being my guest host here for this week. Where can people find you on the internet? Go ahead and plug yourself. Thanks for having me back. I've loved it. Um, Shame Adam can be here, but... Uh, maybe we're the same person. Ooh. Oh, what a twist. Ooh. Um, I loved your episode of the dubs. Was odd. I did not expect a Morbius sweep, though. You know, you can't spoil that shit, man. They gotta, they gotta get behind the paywall for that Morbius sweep. Um, but yeah, if I've not put you off listening to more of me or reading my stuff, you can find me on Twitter or whatever social media in we everyone migrates to at Rodgers J04. That's spelled with two Ds. My writings, uh, reviews, articles, podcast appearances are all collated into the reviewing Rodgers.co.uk. So yeah, come check that out. Yes, yes, please do. And uh, for more of us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram 
at DEDBpod. And also you can uh, submit feedback to us either there or at our email, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, for more of me, you can uh, find me on Twitter and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing at uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. And I want to just shout out, I, uh, I just did a guest appearance recently on uh, The Real Talk Movie Show. I came on for a second time where me and Nick Chandler talked about the latest M. Night Shyamalan movie, Knock at the Cabin. When to spoilery details about that. Also, I discussed a bit more about the book, which I actually read. That's right, I read a book, everybody. Fancy Ooh. me. Um, and I compared it to the movie as well. Um, you can uh, find that once again. It's The Real Talk Movie Show. I had a lot of fun there with Nick. But uh, for more of uh, the show, please subscribe to us on places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, our podcast network, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? And uh, you can also dig into the archives on our Podbean main feed for like 200 episodes or so before we even join Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, money can be tight. That's cool, we get it. That $1 for, once again, bonus podcasts and to vote in polls for future movies we cover. Not everybody can do that, but uh, the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility out there. But now, James, before we head on out, we're going to be doing our picking for next week. Yes, at the end of every episode, we have two good picks and two bad picks. You know, Adam submits his choices, like I said earlier. So I have his two good picks for next week's episode and my two bad picks. And they are each assigned number between 1 and 10. So uh, the other person, in this case James, has to pick a number between 1 and 10 for both those choices. And whatever that's cho- closest to gets us our good and our bad picks. So, for example, James could say, uh, I'm going to pick number 3. And I'll say, okay, that's closest to number one, which is this particular title. And thus, we have to cover that one for the next topic. And uh, our next episode is very interesting because it's coinciding with uh, right before the Academy Awards are going to be happening. Um, And we like doing something kind of related to the Oscars to some degree. And uh, we decided to do a fun thing where we're going to be talking about Best Picture Follow-Ups. So basically, these are movies directed by directors who at least direct the Best Picture winner from the previous uh, time, uh, was a previous film, and so uh, this would be the films that they follow that up with. For example, like with uh, Schindler's List, with Steven Spielberg's Best Picture winner, he followed up with The Lost World Jurassic Park. So that could be in potential contention, could be interesting. I'm curious, how do you feel about that as a topic, James? That's a really interesting way to approach it, yeah. Because especially you're probably going to get some, in a reference to a podcast we both listen to, some blank check projects through this. Yes, that's very true. Uh, it gives you know that carte blanche after the best picture win. A lot of things mm. could happen. Uh, but yeah, so Adam has the two good picks and I have the two bad picks. So I have them both here. Signed numbers between one and ten. James, please, for the good picks first, number between one and ten. Okay, I'm going to go for in honor of Creed being Creed's place in the Rocky franchise, number seven. Okay. That's very close to number eight, uh, where Adam has um, the best picture follow-up for Mr. William Friedkin after The French Connection, which was nominated for a Best Picture Oscar in its own right, and a lot of other Oscars, especially for, you know, this very weird uh, off-kilter horror film, The Exorcist. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. A lot of interesting stuff there. Though, on the other side of things, over at number two, uh, Adam had the best picture follow-up for 
two, you know, very celebrated directors who had won screenplay Oscars before they won uh, director and picture for No Country for Old Men, he had the Coen Brothers' Burn After Reading, which I feel is a very underrated movie. A lot of fun. Definitely a weird movie to follow up No Country with, but it fits perfectly for the Coens. I've actually not seen Burn After Reading. Oh, very good movie. Would definitely mm. recommend it. That's why yes. uh, But now, for my two bad picks, James, number between 1 and 10. Okay, um, Supergirl was released um, after the third Superman film, so I'm going to go for number four. All right. Number three, I have a rather infamous example of a Best Picture follow-up for, especially not a very celebrated Best Picture winner, one that's looked down upon, really, in hindsight, from a guy who, um, at least for a while, was the star of a very popular television show, um, and is director in his own right, and he starred in that Best Picture winner, Dances with Wolves, I have Kevin Costner's follow-up of The Postman. Oh, dear. Yep. I haven't seen this one. I've only heard it's infamously terrible. So Same. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. You're welcome. To hear about that. Yes, uh, I haven't seen the other one, too, here, which I'd heard not necessarily great things about. Um, it is the best picture follow-up for... Uh, I believe the director's name is John Madden, who did Shakespeare in Love. Uh, yes, it is John Madden. John Madden's follow-up to Shakespeare in Love, which was uh, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, which is a movie where Penelope Cruz and Nicolas Cage fall in love with each other in Italy, apparently. And I've heard it's very bad. I think I've heard Nicolas Cage plays a Greek man, so that'll be interesting. Oh, wow. Okay, so... <laughs> yeah, so next time it'll be The Postman the Exorcist. Two very... <laughs> Fun films. I can't Sounds like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> so, The Exorcist and The Postman walk into a bar. Yes. Uh, find out the punchline of that joke next time. But until then, everybody, don't fight over Hart Bachner without a beard. You're a strong, independent woman. You don't need no Hart Bachner without a beard. <laughs> Go for a Michael B. Jordan instead. Yeah. More of a real man. I completely abandoned my plans for world domination for Michael B. Jordan. Why not? 